According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are, once again, in the book of Isaiah, still, 56 weeks later, arriving this morning at chapter 56. Twelve verses in chapter 56. And I'm skeptical. I'm dubious. We could spend every Sunday this month in this chapter. But we'll just uh, race through it and see what the Lord has for us. Thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Every once in a while I encounter somebody that grumbles a little bit about Jesus, and behold, I come quickly. As the book of Revelation concludes with a promise, in fact, it's the very last promise in all the Bible, is, behold, I come quickly. And in the body of Christ, in the church age, we look at that and we say, well, man, it's been 2,000 years now. What does he mean by quickly? Right? As we saw last week, his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts, as the heavens are higher than the earth. So we understand that there is a perspective that God has that we don't have pertaining to quickly. But lest we start to grumble ourselves in the church age promises that were given in 96 AD in the New Testament, how about this one? Israel has been waiting 700 years longer than we have uh, in terms of the promise uttered through Isaiah, my salvation is about to come. And then, of course, it did come. He was born of a virgin in the manger, and they crucified him. All right, so now the salvation has to come a second time. And has to come uh, without mention of sin because he dealt with sin the first time. In any event, there's a lot of, of meat in this chapter and a lot we could tear into and spend our time in. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure each believer priest is in fellowship, filled with the Holy Spirit, and equipped to receive spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for truth. We thank you for the authority that you have in our lives, authority yourself as the sovereign God of the universe, authority through your word. Father, as you have magnified your word in accordance with your your name. And so we are under your authority. We are under the authority of your word. Through your word also, Father, we are subject to the governing authorities that are over us, the laws of the United States of America and the state of Texas. I thank you for the blessings we have to be in subjection, as this not only has temporal life benefit, but also spiritual life benefit in our service to you. I pray that you would open the eyes of our understanding now and set aside distractions. I rejoice that in this land we still have the freedom to assemble together, and so here we are. And Father, we're calling upon your faithfulness. Your word will not return void. We saw that last week. It will accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And that includes this word, this hour, to these people. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ, most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, we have really, from the Through the Bible Notebook, a very short outline, two main points, two only two simple points, and I'm going to dispute point two, as uh, I think I was incorrect in point two as I gave that in 2002. And so we'll do a better job with it here this morning. We're going to start with the foreigners and the eunuchs. All right. So we'll start with the foreigners and the eunuchs, and we probably won't be politically correct with some of the terms we use, um, but we'll just keep it biblical and maintain the, uh, the vocabulary that we have here. But first of all, the psalm, not the psalm, but the chapter is introduced with verses 1 and 2, which almost seem like a psalm because it uses the language of the psalms, how blessed is, asherah, happy is, the man who does this. And it's as if in the midst of this prophecy related to the millennial kingdom that Isaiah himself stops and composes uh, a chapter that would otherwise fit in very well with the book of Psalms. All right. So again, verses 1 and 2, thus says the Lord, preserve justice and do righteousness. For my salvation is about to come, my righteousness to be revealed. How blessed or how happy Asherah is the man who does this, and the son of man who takes hold of it, who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. And we have an introduction to this psalm, an introduction to this chapter that is very much in keeping with chapter 55 and what preceded it, is that when the kingdom of heaven comes, 
It is not only the Jewish people that has to be prepared for it, but it is the redeemed Jewish people. It is the born-again believers. It is not all Israel that is Israel. All Israel will be saved, but that comes as unbelieving Israel is judged, is disciplined, and is removed. And even believing Israel better be humble. Believing Israel better be walking in a manner worthy of repentance. The whole message of John the Baptist is bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. He's he's warning them, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he got that sense of urgency from this chapter. Got that sense of urgency from this section of Isaiah. In fact, much of what we dealt with last week and ran out of time with last week centered on those warnings that were given to the Jewish people to be walking in holiness before the kingdom of holiness arrives. All right. And so how happy is the man who does this and the son of man who takes hold of it. And we see that we have multiple generations that are happening here in this. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Nor let the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. And so in the poetry of this psalm, we're introduced now to two characters, the foreigner and the eunuch. All right, two characters that might otherwise be excluded from Israel's covenant blessings. And we'll discuss that here this morning. And so it's introduced here in verse 3 as a foreigner and a eunuch, and then they get expanded upon in what follows in reverse order. The eunuchs get verses 4 and 5. You spot that there? For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs in verse 4, and continued to them in verse 5, their memorial name is going to be better than sons and daughters, which eunuchs can't produce and then we have uh, foreigners in verses six and following so six seven and eight uh, expands upon the foreigners so we have this uh, highlight here foreigners and eunuchs are specifically highlighted for particular millennial blessings and these are details that are coming along the way details and clues by the way that things are going to be different in the coming kingdom different than how they had it under moses not to say that mosaic law is abolished and done away with but it is actually fulfilled in christ and it is expanded and so there are elements of mosaic law that are going to be different in the in the millennial kingdom including the admission of uh, eunuchs the admission of other uh hunchbacks and dwarfs and deformities and and other visible testimonies to sin that were banned under mosaic law are going to be welcomed and celebrated in the kingdom law of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And hopefully you'll see what we're talking about as we work our way through this. So, commands and expectations normally given to Israel are now extended to foreigners and eunuchs in the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. We have an expansion towards the foreigners and towards the eunuchs. Of course, foreigners will be excluded anyway because they're not Jews. But then eunuchs, even if they're Jewish eunuchs, they are, uh, or dwarfs or hunchbacks or other deformities that we'll see, um, even though they're Jewish, they are still uh, expelled. They're still not permitted. They're not uh, permitted to be partakers of the solemn assembly under Mosaic law, excluded from Passover and Pentecost and feasts and uh, booths and, and uh, Yom Kippur and all the glorious times for Israel to assemble together. And in some cases, it's the general population that's excluded. But in every case, a priest or a Levite is absolutely banned from any Levitical service if they have a deformity of this nature. Uh, particularly related to the, the, the eunuch, all right? If they are themselves not sexually fruitful, then they don't fit with the picture of what God is promising for the coming Christ. And we'll talk about that as well. All right, so these commands are now being extended. Clearly, anyone would want to preserve righteous, uh, preserve uh, justice, uh, to wait in holiness for the arrival of the kingdom. That's an invitation of the kingdom, specifically for the Jewish people. Now it's being expanded to foreigners and eunuchs. You might be familiar with this. You might not be. Um, we're going to go fast through all of this. I'm not going to stop and take the time. Let's let's spend six hours in Leviticus, um, but. You would, you would profit from doing that, all right? We're going to spend a brief amount of time in Deuteronomy 23 and in Leviticus 21. Eunuchs, under Mosaic law, 
These, uh, these are people either born that way or through a workplace accident or through uh, a, a, a combat or some other fashion, he is emasculated. Under Mosaic law, eunuchs are banned from sacred participation. And here's why. Their condition created an unacceptable picture of the anticipated Messiah. All right, It was not permitted for them, not for their sake, not because of the, the inconvenience to them or the disfigurement or the, the, the pain or any, anything on their behalf. It was because that failed to rise to the level of the picture of what they were portraying. They were priests anticipating the coming of the spotless Lamb of God without spot or blemish, the perfect Lamb of God who would lay down His life for us. All right? And so I'll grab these here. Deuteronomy 23, 1. Deuteronomy 23, 1. No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. All right? Boom. There it is. <laughs> and this is not just in the, among the priests and the Levites for their service. This is among the general population. This is, this is just the random Jewish guy, okay? Ben from the tribe of Benjamin or whoever. Just some random Jewish guy. If, uh, if, if, if he's been disfigured in this sense, combat or accident or whatever, um, or born that way, okay, is not eligible to enter the assembly of the Lord, the solemn assembly, the sacred occasions such as the festivals, Passover and Pentecost, the Sabbath observances, whereby they would go to the tabernacle, they would go to the holy place, or they would go and they would assemble together with a covenant people. On these nights, they stay home. All right? They stay home in their disability, okay? In their disfigurement, in their illegitimate function to picture the coming Christ. Now that changes at the second advent because Jesus has become our curse. Jesus has borne our iniquities. Jesus himself was disfigured more than any man. All right, But he endured that on our behalf to present us into this kingdom. And we'll talk about that. We've already seen the female side of it last week. When the barren woman is rejoicing for all the kids she has in the millennial kingdom. And you might recall that was on the, the, the female side of this whole miracle. Uh, well, we get the masculine side of it here today. The, uh, the eunuch is going to have a name beyond any number of children, all right? Because he's going to have a memorial name in uh, the house of the Lord. So Leviticus 21, I think uh, there's nothing else in the sense of, say, is there anything else I want to do in, as long as I'm in Deuteronomy? No, I guess not. The, uh, there is in chapter 22 some of the issues of virginity and harlotry and the things there, but we'll, uh, we'll deal with that when we get into, when we get into uh, that aspect of Proverbs. Okay, Leviticus 21. Leviticus 21. Going the wrong direction. Now here's a larger section in a uh, more comprehensive format, and it's not simply the population at large, but specifically targeting the, the Levitical tribe, the Levitical service, and the priesthood, which is a subset of that. And so you'll notice that uh, the whole chapter here is, is dedicated to this. Um, you know, you realize if you touch a dead person, you're defiled, and so the, the high priest is not permitted to do that. Um, somebody else has to bury the dead because the high priest isn't going to be doing it. He cannot defile himself for a dead body. Um, other aspects here, the priest has to marry a virgin. Um, this was not required for all the Jewish people, but it is absolutely required for the priest. Uh, as it says in verse 7, shall not take a woman who is profaned by harlotry, uh, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for he is uh, holy to his God. And uh, gets expanded as well, uh, a widow as well shall take a wife in her virginity. Verse 14, a widow or a divorced woman or a harlot. Notice those are the only three options for the non-virgin in that verse. 
that uh, she is either a married woman, in which case she's not a virgin, but she's now uh, a divorced woman, or she's a widow, all right, not a virgin because she was uh, a married woman before she was widowed, or the third option, if she's no longer a virgin and not married or never had been married, then uh, she is a harlot, all right, and that's the, those are the options there. And off limits for the priests and the high priest to, uh, to marry. And then it goes on. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron. This is verse 17, Leviticus 21. No man of your offspring throughout their generations who has a defect shall approach to offer the food of his God. Uh, no one who has a defect shall approach a blind man or a lame man or he who has a disfigured face or any deformed limb. All right. You got a wrist bone that's dislocated. It takes six weeks. Well, you got, uh, you got uh, paid leave. How about that? You're off duty for the next six weeks. Come back in January and, uh, and do that, all right? We're not Levitical, all right? Good thing. Um, or a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand or a hunchback or a dwarf or one who has a defect in his eye or eczema or scabs or crushed testicles. No man among the descendants of Aaron or the priest who has a defect is to come near to offer the Lord's offerings by fire. Since he has a defect, he shall not come near to offer the food of his God. All right, and this is the, this is the picture that's being portrayed, okay? And the Old Testament under law was designed to paint those visible pictures. Absolutely, the externals were vital. They will give way to the substance. The substance belongs to Christ. The spiritual realities are, are, of course, what we operate in in the church age. What Israel will start to operate in in the millennial kingdom. But for the Old Testament and for the, the context of this, the, uh, the externals are still critical. All right, Until such time as you're able to see the invisible, you need to learn from the visible. Why do you think the Word became flesh and dwelt among us? Because no one had seen the Father at any time. But God the Son, in the image of the invisible God, He has come. And so we have uh, patterns there that we understand in that typology. Now, in the second advent of Jesus Christ, eunuchs are going to be welcome. Eunuchs are welcome participants. And I expect a lot of the torture that Israel goes through at the hands of Antichrist, at the hands of, uh, of, uh, in the tribulation, a lot of the, uh, the uh, injuries that are done. I mean, you read what happened on the Bataan Death March. Understand what the Japanese did to our soldiers and sailors in, in, uh, in the Philippines there, in the Bataan Peninsula. Um, they're just ugly, ugly things happen in the consequence of war, in the consequence of, of this, when the demons are raging. So there's going to be a lot of disfigurement for those who survive the tribulation. And yet they will be welcome. Eunuchs will be welcome participants in the sacred functions as their condition is now an appropriate picture of the victorious Messiah. Jesus Christ himself will bear the scars in his hand. Jesus Christ himself will bear the, the spear uh, scar in his side. They will be portrayals of, the, of the, the Lamb of God who died to take away the sin of the world. And they're going to be welcome participants according to Isaiah 56, verses 4 and 5. And I think it's a, it's a great promise. It's like the promise to the barren woman from the last chapter. Thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths. All right? And there's a lot of things you're going to miss out on. You're not going to have normal family life. You're not going to have children and grandchildren and all the, the fun that goes with that. But here's what you're going to have. All right? You choose what pleases me. Hold fast my covenants. To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. You know, it's, it's a rather common human practice. You want your name to be carried on in the, in the offspring, in the sons and grandsons and the, the children that then come. Well, uh, the eunuchs in the millennium are going to have something better than that. They're gonna actually going to have a memorial, a monument of some sort. I don't know, plaque or a stone or something but a memorial within my walls within my walls the great heroes that survived the tribulation they're going to be remembered forever in the millennial kingdom and i will give them a name better than sons and daughters i will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off you know eventually even if you do produce the next generation what if they don't <laughs> what if that next generation doesn't produce the generation after that 
Or what if that generation doesn't? You know, eventually what happens when uh, there's no more Bolanders on the earth? What a sad day. All right. Or whatever else. Okay. Well, we say, who cares? Uh, in our day and age, big deal. It's, uh, we, have a, we have a spiritual priesthood in Christ, and it's irrelevant who your paternity is or whatever else. But again, put yourself here now in the tribal allotments of Israel and their, in their uh, families and clans and the blessings that they receive on the basis of their name. On the basis of their name. So that's going to become important. I do like the way these verses here do go back to what the... The female side of thing was celebrating in, in chapter 54 and verse 1. Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman, says the Lord. And there's the female side of the barren woman who will finally, in the, in the metaphor of this, will finally have the children of blessing that uh, has been long promised. You think Sarah waited a long time? You think Sarah was was disgruntled over the, the baby that Hagar was having? And uh, imagine Israel now, all right? Israel waiting for the, uh, the millennial kingdom. A lot longer than Sarah ever waited. All right, not only eunuchs, but also foreigners. Foreigners who will volunteer for slavery in order to become household servants of Jesus Christ and to join the millennial house of prayer. All right, the word is avad or nevid. The word is a bondservant or a slave. Um, some folks don't like that word, and so they try to find a softer expression of it in, uh, in a very positive way, like, you know, David was a servant of the Lord and things like that. It is voluntary, and there's no question about that. But they make that choice because it allows them to have proximity in Jerusalem itself, proximity to the Lord himself, rather than the Gentile land grants that would otherwise be available to them on the millennial earth. So foreigners will volunteer for slavery in order to become household servants of Jesus Christ and to join the millennial house of prayer. Now part of this, again, is a much larger study and one that didn't used to need to be done because uh, people just kind of used to know that uh, places were where people were. All right, and that's... You know, uh, French people belonged in France, where they speak French, all right? Or Germans belong in Germany, where they speak German. And, and we used to have this concept of nations and borders and language, and, and all of that's under attack, and all of that's kind of disappearing. And now it's, hey, you can go wherever you want to go, and go there and bring your filth with you and whatever else, all right? That's not the biblical model. At, at Babel, he separated them. He divided them by their languages. He established their land grant. And we, in fact, every Gentile nation has boundaries that Deuteronomy establishes. And Acts 17 also establishes in the New Testament that Jesus Christ controls history, including their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. And so all of this is in the plan of God. And so... Um, this is not a, an undocumented um, immigrant. And by the way, they understood expatriate communities. That it was a function in the Old Testament that someone could be a sojourner. All right? And a sojourner who was sojourning in a land uh, knew that it was not his land. It was not his people. It was not his laws. It was not his language. But as they sojourn in that land with those people, with that language... They operated under those laws. They were required to follow Mosaic law while they were living in the land of Israel. Different applications there. Anyway, that was before political correctness came along and certain words became unacceptable. But within, within this, the foreigners, the strangers, okay? They're not from here. They're strange, <laughs> okay? Now, you go to where, they are, where they're from and you're the strange one, all right? You're the strange one. Oh, okay. So it works both ways. It just depends on who you are and where you are. Okay? I was, believe me, I was strange in Kenya. All right. <laughs> Careful. The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him. There's a, there's a work of service there, all right? Which otherwise they would not be entitled to. And to love the name of the Lord. To be His levadim, His bondservants, His slaves. 
Everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even those I will bring to my holy mountain. Remember Sinai we saw last hour? Limited access at Sinai. Okay, the elders could come a certain distance. Moses got the closest, and most of the people were down there at the bottom of the mountain, not touching it or not letting their animals touch it. Okay, but in the millennium, these volunteer Gentiles are going to be brought in. Even those I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. They get to offer sacrifices? I thought only the Levites could do that. These guys have a special position here in this uh, in this for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the gentiles all the nations all the peoples my house will be called a house of prayer so the lord god who gathers the dispersed of israel he's not just going to grab the jews guess who else he's going to grab these believing Gentiles as well. And we know this, by the way, because of Matthew 24. We know this because of the sheep and goat judgment of Matthew 25. We know this because of the wilderness judgment of, of Israel in Ezekiel 20. He's going to regather everybody. All right. So uh, the Lord God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, yet others I will gather to uh, them, to those already gathered. And I think this is what Jesus Christ was referencing when he said, I am the good shepherd and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I don't think that he was betraying the mystery of the church in John chapter 10. All right. That takes us down through verse 8. Now, interestingly enough, for them to volunteer for the slavery, for them to volunteer to come in and reside in Jerusalem, to serve Jesus Christ locally in Jerusalem, to become participants in the millennial house of prayer. The millennial house of prayer. And we got some efforts now called house of prayer, different prayer ministries in the church age, and they design them to be ecumenical. They design them to be kind of interfaith and Christians of whatever church can go there on a night of the week and take part in the prayer meetings and pray for Austin and pray for Texas and pray for the United States. And I'm saying that's a great idea. I'm thankful they're doing it, but that's not fulfillment of this. Okay. The house of prayer in the millennium is going to be Gentiles volunteering for slavery to serve Jesus Christ in Jerusalem rather than living in their Gentile lands during that thousand-year kingdom, that thousand-year reign. A little bit of this was foreshadowed even way back in chapter 14 in the uh, chapter of Isaiah where he's mocking the uh, Satan and he's mocking, uh, mocking this. This is a taunt, you might recall. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. Okay, Strangers or foreigners, same Hebrew word here. And so it's on a volunteer basis to say, I want to be a part of that immediate presence of the glory of the Lord. The peoples will take them along and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance. So people become a possession. All right, this makes some folks uncomfortable because of the the ugliness of historical slavery as it existed in, in, in our nation's past. But they will take them as a possess the, possession, possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord, as male servants, as female servants. They will take their captors captive and they will rule over their oppressors. So that was way back in chapter 14. This shouldn't be a shock to us then in chapter 56 that we see it spelled out. And we see that it's not a brutal thing of plantation slavery, but it is a, a thing of worship for these servants to be serving the Lord, to be serving the Jewish people, and to be functioning in this international um, Gentile house of prayer. By the way, if you know your Old Testament, this, was, this already happened once. When they came out of Egypt in Exodus chapter 12, this was foreshadowed at the Exodus when a mixed multitude joined Israel in their departure from Egypt. Okay, Somebody mentioned that in prayer meeting this morning. I was impressed. As, uh, not a lot of people know that. It's kind of an obscure little verse there in, in, Ezekiel, in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 38. All right? So somebody either really knows Exodus 12 really well or they were spying on me in uh, my study to put in the slideshow together. 
But it was a mixed multitude. They went out with them when they left Egypt. You know, they were Egyptians or they were slaves of other races or whatever. And they said, hey, Yahweh is rescuing those people and I want to be a part of that. And if I have to be a Gentile dog, I'll be a part of that. And honestly, I can't prove it. But my personal theory is that Caleb was one of those Gentile dogs. Caleb, the son of Jephunneh was one of those Gentile dogs adopted into the tribe of Judah when he attached himself to the Jewish people. That's why Caleb has two fathers in Scripture. That's why he has a Gentile name like Caleb. There's no Jewish person going to name their kid dog. Okay, Dogs are uh, unclean. We've got dogs in this passage. Dogs are mute, unable to bark. Those are the best kind of dogs. Um, but I'll get to that in uh, Isaiah 56.10. Okay, they're great if you don't like barking dogs, but they're a problem if they're supposed to be barking dogs because those are guard guard dogs. Okay, they're on they're guard dogs on duty and they're just as drunk as the as the dog owners are, uh, asleep and and clueless. And here comes the here comes the judgment. All right, so Exodus twelve thirty eight. If you turn there, you'll you'll spot that, and you'll see that mixed multitude. Also at the conquest. When Joshua led them into the land, you had these rascals, these, these Gibeonites. And they saw what was happening at Jericho and Ai and all these other places. They heard what happened to Egypt. They heard what happened to Sihon and Og. And they, they realized, wait a minute, we're doomed unless we can trick them. And that's what they did. And so you take a, in fact, you could spend a whole Sunday preaching Joshua chapter 9. They put on this elaborate masquerade. And they acted like they got the stalest, oldest, nastiest bread they, they possibly had. And they took it with them in their ratty clothes and everything. And they, they showed up to Joshua surrendering to be slaves, saying, we come from a far land. And look, when we left our homes, this bread was fresh. And uh, it was all just a big, uh, a big ruse. And, uh, and Joshua failed to inquire of the Lord and ask for wisdom on that. Instead, he just got all puffed up thinking, wow, aren't we great? We got people volunteering to be our slaves. And he accepted their service before he learned who they really were. And so they became slaves in Joshua 9. All right, Even to the day of the writing of the book of Joshua, they were still in that service. Remember, every time the Bible says, as it is to this day, um, we're talking about the contemporary, contemporary time of the author of the book. In this case, contemporaneous with the authorship of Joshua. That would have been a good ordination question for Pastor Dan. Who wrote the book of Joshua? All right. Just wanted to read here. It says, um, even after the jig was up, um, (laughs) Joshua called for them. Why did you deceive us? saying we're very far from you and when you're living within our own you're you're my next door neighbor (laughs) You, you didn't come from wherever why did you deceive us now therefore you are cursed and you shall never cease being slaves both hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my god so they answered joshua and said because it was certainly told your servants that the lord your god had commanded his servant moses to give you all the land to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you therefore we feared greatly for our lives because of you and we have done this thing So, yeah, better to be your slave than to be dead. Now behold, we are in your hands. Do as seems good and right in your sight to do to us. Now they're stuck because they made a vow. Now they have to obey the Lord to exterminate them or they have to obey the Lord to keep them alive, to keep their vow. So he did to them and delivered them from the hands of the sons of Israel. They did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place which he would choose. And so they're, they're the slaves to do that manual labor for the upkeep of the, of the temple under Levite and priestly supervision. Then, of course, the example of Ruth. Here's a personal faith during the judges by the personal example of Ruth. And this one's the closest of all the Old Testament examples, I think, to what will happen in the millennium. Here is a believer who knows where the blessing is going to come from. I don't suspect that the mixed multitude was all regenerate. I just thought they were jumping on a better political gig. Likewise, the Gibeonites, I don't suppose for a minute they were regenerate. They just didn't want to get wiped out, exterminated as a tribe. But Ruth was clearly a believer. 
Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. She's going to stop being a Moabitess. And she is going to live among the, uh, the Jewish people as a Jew. Okay? And that's the difference between a sojourner and an immigrant. Okay? Someone that wants to stop being what they were, come and be something new, learn a new language, learn a new culture, adopt a new, a new um, allegiance in a land that, uh, that you are immigrating to. And so uh, Ruth 1.16 is the example there. This prophecy regarding the Father's house as a house of prayer was of great significance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, as recorded in Matthew 21 and Mark 11 and Luke 19, this was the passage of Scripture that drove him berserk. Absolutely bonkers when he saw what they had turned the temple into. It was supposed to be a place of prayer. And he said, you've turned my Father's house of prayer into a den of thieves into a robber's den. He's flipping over tables. He's driving out the money changers. Okay? So when you ask yourself, what would Jesus do? Realize flipping over tables and whipping people is, is within the context. All right? In love. In love. He never sinned. Okay? Be angry yet do not sin. All right? So in Matthew 21, I find this interesting because, you know, he is so, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and then he knows it's not going to be at hand. He knows that they are rejecting him. He weeps over Jerusalem for the could have, would have, and should have that they're turning down. He weeps over what is not to be. He stops telling his disciples that it's at hand, and he starts to prepare them for his departure. And, and then he comes into Jerusalem and the children are singing songs that the Pharisees should be singing. They're singing hallelujah. They're singing uh, Psalm 118. And the, the Sanhedrin's not. The religious leaders are not. They're telling the kids to shut up and stop that singing. And they're singing the, the only thing they, they, they should be singing. And then they come into the temple and he sees this activity here. So I like Matthew 21. And uh, here's the kids and all the singing. They want them to shut up and all these things are happening. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers. See, it was big business for them. They were making big bucks on the currency exchange and the selling the approved uh, USDA grade A approved uh, lambs and turtle doves and animals and whatnot. And he said to them, it is written... My house shall be called a house of prayer. He is citing our passage this morning. Jesus Christ is citing Isaiah 56. While he cycles the doctrine and serves God the Father, he says, you're making it a robber's den. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Um, And the parallel text, that was Matthew 21, but we don't have to turn to all three of these. Mark 11, Luke 19. Do we get grieved over the things that we see? Does it impact us at all? When we should be serving the Father and we see this world doing what it's doing? You know, Lot's righteous soul was vexed day by day, we're told. But it wasn't vexed enough to get out of Sodom. Why was he still there when the angels arrived? <laughs> Why was he still there with his daughters? Why was he still there with his sons-in-law? All right. Yeah, there we have it. Now, Back to the context here then. So yes, the Jewish people have things to look forward to. Gentiles have things to look forward to. Even the, uh, the eunuchs have things to look forward to. Then we have a shift. We get into verses 9 and following. And Isaiah shifts his focus. Isaiah shifts his address back to present time. You know, when you're dreaming about the kingdom to come, the kingdom to come, and then you see circumstances today... <laughs> that just are not ready for that kingdom to come. You can imagine how um, hard that is for a prophet like Isaiah, how hard that is for John the Baptist, how hard that was for Daniel. So Isaiah shifts his address back to his present time in a dramatic change of context and setting. And this I, I, is what I got wrong in the through the Bible notes, so uh, you can cross that off and replace it with what we're learning here today. 
think the context shifts. All you beasts of the field. It's a different audience. It's not eunuchs. It's not foreigners. At least not eschatologically looking forward to the kingdom. But it's presently now. All you beasts of the field. All you beasts in the forest come to eat. Dinner time. All right. Dinner time for the wolves. Because these sheep have no shepherd. Dinner time for the lions. For the bears. Okay. If a shepherd is awake and alert like David, he'll go kill the lion. He'll go kill the bear. Okay? And he did that as a 10-year-old, before, you know, taking care of Jesse's flock. But here the dinner bell is being rung. That's why I say, you know, what do you call sheep without a shepherd? Food. <laughs> okay? Pray. P-R-E-Y, right? The, the victims of the predators are sheep without a shepherd. Sheep need a shepherd because they don't have the claws and the teeth and the ferocity and the nature to fight off the wolves, to fight off the, the uh, lions and the bears, the robbers and anybody else. All right, so all you beasts of the field, all you beasts of the forest. And I think that's interesting contrast. Domesticated versus wild animals. Come to eat. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. Okay? Sergeant Schultz is on guard duty tonight from uh, Hogan's Heroes, right? I see nothing. You know? That's who you want on duty when you're going to break into someplace or escape out of someplace. Or do, there's, a, there's a reason why that was such a great comedy for all those years. Still to this day, I laugh. Great, great stuff. Okay? And here's what he's saying the, the watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. They're blind and stupid. And the worst part is, the, 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 the saddest thing is, is they're stupid, but they think they're smart. They're absolutely ignorant, but they're convinced they know it all. You and I are living in this day and age. I know. I'm going to get my first amen in a long, long time here this morning. Right here in Isaiah 56. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark. Now, that's a metaphor, of course, if you're on guard duty. You have dogs on guard duty. The MP Corps used to have a canine uh, division within it that uh, I wasn't really interested in. I thought about it once, then I realized there were dogs. (laughs) I also learned that it was the privates, the, the E1s, E2s, and E3s that were cleaning out the kennels every day. That it was only, you had to get to corporal or sergeant before you stopped cleaning out dog kennels. And I said, well, wait a minute. I'll do something else till I make sergeant. Then maybe I'll transfer over to the canine division. Even then there were still dogs. Um, the army, by the way, also used geese. Did you know that? Geese are noisy and they're skittish. And you could put geese in these pens along the fence line and, and, and every day it was an MP duty on the missile site to, to go down and, and feed the geese. And because they would, just, they would just raise a racket if anyone approached. And um, they didn't last long either. But um, for different reasons. The geese were actually nicer than the dogs, but for different reasons, we lost all our geese. All right. Where am I? Ah. So watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs unable to bark. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber. Now it's one thing, of course, if you're a prophet, if you're a dreamer of dreams, and then you wake up and you give the warning to the Jewish people about thus saith the Lord, I had a vision, Babylon's on the way, we better repent, or here's the kingdom, we need to be righteous for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, but if your dreamer is just all jazzed up about his dream so that he can sleep more, that he's going to spend all night in bed dreaming and then go back to bed in the morning to dream some more, and it's just, and he's not standing to give a message, he's not warning, okay, then, uh, then what good is he? He's a dreamer lying down who loves to slumber. And the dogs are greedy, they are not satisfied. They are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each one to his unjust gain, to the last one. 
And this is the message Jeremiah is delivering in his day and age. Ezekiel is giving in his day and age. Ezekiel pronounces the, the woe upon the faithless shepherds of Israel. In fact, doing so as a contemporary to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is delivering the message in Jerusalem. Ezekiel's delivering the same message over in, uh, in the captivity in Babylon. They're in it for the money. They're not the shepherd, they're the robber. Now, Jesus spoke of this. He says, those that came before me are robbers, but I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. Okay, so why is the man even in the ministry? <laughs> we tried to grill Dan on this at his ordination exam. Why do you want to be a pastor? You know, are you in it for the money? <laughs> it's a glamorous lifestyle. You know, you'll just, there's hardly any career path you could follow that'll, uh, that'll be more lucrative for your uh, estates. I mean, clearly, you've seen where Joel Osteen lives? Oh, now I went, I named names. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. There are, there are websites that have his house plotted on a, on a satellite map and pictures of his house and whatever, whatever. You know what? Who cares? You make the money, buy whatever house you want to buy. Okay? What am I saying? If you're in it for the money, you're not a shepherd. All right? You're a hireling. Okay? You're a hireling. And Jesus said that in John chapter 10. Come, they say, let us... Here's what they say. This is their message, but it's their message to one another. Come, they say, let us get wine and let us drink heavily of strong drink. Remember the eat, drink, and marry for tomorrow we die? This is a perversion of even that. And that was pretty bad. This is a perversion of even that. This is eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow we'll do even more. Right? Let us get wine and let us drink heavily of strong drink, and tomorrow will be like today, only more so. Okay, it's not tomorrow we die. As far as they're concerned, this party never ends. This party, I'm going to be more drunk tomorrow than I got today, and that's kind of spectacular. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that, that's what they're looking forward to. And so it's, uh, it's horrendous. All right. Now, so we understand that there is a shift here. The Gentiles who will someday join Israel in blessing, not, not this day, <laughs> this day they are presently beasts invited to plunder the blind, mute, sleeping, greedy, selfish drunkards of Israel. I mean, how much easier can it get to plunder the blind, mute, sleeping, greedy, selfish drunkards of Israel? And sadly, those that are in such conditions can be completely oblivious to it. The, the rebuke to Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3 in verse 17. They thought that they were rich. They thought they had need of nothing. They were the New Testament equivalent of these guys from Isaiah and Ezekiel. Um, Revelation 3.17 They thought, hey, we're, we're rich. We have need of nothing. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You think you have everything going for and you're oblivious to the fact that you have all of these issues and God is the only one that can deal with any of them. I advise you to buy from me gold refined from fire. You need, you need to get out of this spiritual destitution and God's wealth is the only wealth that will do it. So that you may become rich in white garments that you may clothe yourself, that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. The provision is from God. We lay up our treasures in heaven, but do we partake in that heavenly marketplace we're supposed to? Are we buying his gold? Are we purchasing his garments? Are we purchasing his eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see? Those whom I love, I reprove. So anytime you're under God's reproof, you realize that it is your uh, invitation to the heavenly marketplace to start to interact with his economy, purchasing what's necessary for your blindness or your nakedness or your poverty or what have you. All right, so... This is the change of tone that's here. And this invitation to plunder. The invitation to plunder. I find that interesting. Come and plunder. 
The invitation to plunder demonstrates the wrath of God upon a nation whose shepherds have neglected their duties. An invitation to plunder. You know, um, when God gives a nation over and says, come, plunder, that's not good, okay? Now, with, a gen- with a Jewish nation, of course, they have an eternal destiny, so even if he temporarily allows them to be plundered, he will restore them later, okay? He'll take them to captivity, he'll bring them back. We don't have those promises in the United States of America. If he gives us over to be plundered, there's no guarantee we're coming back. Remember the appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. The, uh, those times are up for the Comanches and whoever else used to call this place theirs. All right? When will, uh, when will the seventh flag fly over Texas? Okay? They understand six flags and more that we don't even know about because they didn't have flags, but we could add to that. But, you know, going back to time immemorial, what, what sovereignty has been on this dirt that God has allowed the appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation? And when it's no longer American territory, God's still in charge of that too. All right. So when he gives that invitation, I've never received an invitation to plunder. Um, I have received admonishments not to plunder. When we, when we conquered Kuwait City, we had very strict no plundering lectures, no souvenir hunting, no plundering. The American military is very unique in the history of the world for the surprisingly small... I mean, there are a few things that happen, and when they do, they get prosecuted. And soldiers go to the stockade because we do not plunder. Um, but an invitation to plunder, okay? Only once. Now, I can, it was um, a, a barn fire in Germany. And, uh, and then we were on maneuvers in a field, and a barn in the next field over caught fire. And a bunch of us ran over there and helped the farmer put out his fire. And, and it was, he was a pig farmer, and there was bacon smelling everywhere. It, was, it, was, uh, it smelled great. And, and we, he invited us to plunder. He, uh, he, uh, he butchered the, the, the dead pigs and, and brought some bread and brought some beer and brought some wine. And our captain promptly confiscated the... <laughs> Until we got back to the barracks, he said, we don't want to be drunk out there on field maneuvers. But, but we did get to plunder the, the, the pork and the bread and uh, the schnitzels and things that he brought out. So that's the only plundering in my entire life I've ever been welcomed to plunder. I've got to wrap this up. Jeremiah chapter 12. Jeremiah chapter 12. Verse 7 says, I have forsaken my house. I have abandoned my inheritance. I have given the beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. You know how tough this was for the Lord? To, to watch Jerusalem trampled? My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has roared against me. Therefore, I have come to hate her. Is my inheritance like a speckled bird of prey to me? Are the birds of prey against her on every side? Go, gather all the beasts of the field, bring them to devour. Here's the plunder, invitation. Bring on the, the, the vultures, the, the buzzards. All right, just eat this carcass. I'm done with her. Many shepherds have ruined my vineyard. They have trampled down my field. They have made my pleasant field a desolate wilderness. Okay. If a nation goes apostate, it's because the shepherds aren't doing their job. Believers have lost their salt, but the shepherds who should be leading those believers aren't feeding them. So they've made my pleasant field a desolate wilderness. All right. So that's uh, Jeremiah 12. Let me grab Nahum next, and then I'll close with Ezekiel, just because I like it better. Nahum chapter 3, I'll take them out of order here. Nahum chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. If you still use paper and have to flip in a sequence, it's Jonah, Micah, Nahum. 
I know software just takes you right there, but Nahum 3. This is a, a similar warning, but it's against Assyria. Remember, they, uh, Jonah preached and they repented. Nahum preached and they got destroyed. And so they have a similar message to what Israel receives. Um, your shepherds are sleeping, O kings of Assyria. Your nobles are lying down. Your peoples are scattered on the mountains and there is no one to regather them. Yahweh is it's almost a taunt. He said, I'm not, Jonah's not coming back. You got Nahum this time and, and you're getting destroyed. Which was not what Nahum wanted to preach, but neither was Jonah the message he wanted to preach. So I guess that's fair. Uh, verse 19, there is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. At what point are we given over and there's no cure? There's no healing. There's no coming back. You know, the cycles of discipline. Colonel Theme taught the six cycles of discipline, and each one was more intense, more intense. But at each one, he had the opportunity to repent and to save your nation. Until that sixth, that final one, some numbered it as five, but I think the destruction was the sixth cycle. All right. There is no relief for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not your evil passed continually? Yeah, you're dying and no one is uh, sad. (laughs) In fact, your death brings a, a standing ovation. You get the clapping hands. That's uh, that's not good. All right, then back to Ezekiel 34. We'll have to wrap this up. Ezekiel 34. Passage that every pastor better learn. Woe to the faithless shepherds of Israel. Okay? This would be the priests, the Levites, the tribal elders, the fathers of their households. Anyone in a spiritual leadership capacity can make the application here. They have been failing in their shepherding duties. Even today, if you're an older believer and you've got a younger believer you're discipling, you have a shepherding responsibility to that younger believer. Shepherding responsibility to the wife. Shepherding responsibility to the children. Clearly, of course, pastors and churches, there's a shepherding context there. So, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock. You know, if you're looking out across that flock and all you see is your own personal food pantry, (laughs) you're not looking at that flock thinking, I'm here to serve them. I have to feed them, I have to water them, I have to lead them, I have to lead them to rest, I have to bind up the broken, bring back the lost, heal the sick. That's a lot of work. I just want a food pantry where I can snack the next meal, okay, or whatever. Um, You eat the fat and clothe yourself with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and severity you have dominated them. I've never written a marriage book, but here's a clue. Okay, force and severity dominating them is not a leadership style. Okay, not for your marriage, not for your church, not for your children. All right, they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. If that's your leadership style of shepherding is is being a tyrant, then they don't have a shepherd. They are scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. And so there it is. A sheep without a shepherd is food. They are prey in verse 5. My flock wandered through all the mountains. Don't forget whose flock it is. You're shepherding the flock of God. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth. There was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord God. You know how strong that is? That's the language of a vow. As I live. This is the God who cannot die. But he says, as I live. How long is that? Yeah. Okay. We've turned these things into children's ditties on the playground. Cross my heart and hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye, right? Liar, liar, pants on fire. We turn these into children's ditties on a playground. And we fail to appreciate the invocations of deity in a solemn abjuration 
The God who cannot lie takes an oath and he stakes his own life on it. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has become food for all the beasts of the field. For lack of a shepherd, my shepherds do not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves, do not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. And this is like the revelation message to the angels of the churches. He's dealing with these shepherds. Behold, I myself, I am against the shepherds. I will demand my sheep from them. You can imagine revelation. I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And I myself will search my sheep. I myself, as a shepherd, cares for his herd in the day when he is among the scattered sheep. I myself will care for them and I will bring them out. I will bind them up and all that stuff. Okay? Just like in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. All right. Well, wish we could spend a whole month in this chapter, but next week is chapter 57. Are you looking for a great political leader? Well, Isaiah 57 should cure you of that. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this truth. Thank you, Father, for the reminder of what we should be about. We should be about your business. We should be shepherding the flock. We should be living in your word. And as we watch the darkness grow darker, Father, I pray that our light shines brighter. I pray that we will be a remnant, a salt and light remnant to our nation. Father, thank you for truth. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.